I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another Curzon Film Podcast. I'm Jake Cunningham and this week we are talking about period writing drama Colette and from the greatest showman to political gnomon, Hugh Jackman in The Front Runner. Joining me to talk through these films, we've got regular podcast contributors Stephen Ryder. Hello. And Kelly Powell. Hi. And joining us from the Curzon programming team, Lydia Penke. Hello. It is obviously a very busy time of year for prestige and quality pictures so it's great to have Lydia on here to talk through some of the films that are going to be making an impact across uh, Curzon cinema screens and all cinema screens across the country uh, along with Lydia's insights and the like maybe lesser insights from wow. Kelly and Stephen. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're also going to be talking to Jason Reitman the director of The Front Runner. Uh, you may know him from his other work like Juno Tully and thank you for smoking so many films and up uh, in the air such and a up good in movie. the air yeah and Labor Day <laughs> no maybe not so much <laughs> men women and children maybe not yeah. so much uh, um, and Kelly you were lucky enough to speak to him yes, and so uh, we're excited to play that one out in a bit uh, but maybe let's start with Colette Colette is a, uh, a truly modern, complex woman, a libertine and bisexual. She also made her fortune from her wits and pushed back against the patriarchy. Wash Westmoreland's film presents an elegant but not sanitised view of turn-of-the-century Paris, where we watch as Colette is seduced and married by notorious rake Willie. Pushed into ghostwriting novels for his charismatic cad, she uses her exuberance to push back against all constrictions placed on her in this rich portrait of a dazzling talent. Um, so this film pretty much uh, played for the first time about a year ago at last year's Sundance where it got into quite a tremendous bidding war and uh, it's reaching our screens now. Uh, Lydia, when were you uh, first able to see this film within that last year? Uh, well, I saw it. I was lucky enough to see it at the London Film Festival. Um, I just want to say I'm really happy to be on this show. I'm really excited <laughs> because I get to say the word Willie a lot. <laughs> I have done that we since I was five. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's the main takeaway from Colette is that we can all talk about yeah. Willies a lot. Yeah. That, that's the big one. <laughs> yeah. uh, so make sure you check out. Hard to film. believe that he was the most kind of famous writer of his time in Paris, really, a man called Willie, but, you know. We're really leading with penis jokes. <laughs> <on this one. laughs> 
Now, it, it explains his insecurities a lot, doesn't it? Uh, yes, I mean, it's a good point. I, I think that the thing with Colette is I can see why there was such a big bidding war for it after its first screening, because I think it, it, it's it's a very opulent film. It's got a very kind of rich texture to it. Every kind of room in the film seems like it's bathed in like perfume kind of haze or smoke or whatever. And I think a lot of people get a, a real kick from that kind of aesthetic. It's kind of a tried and tested aesthetic. And whilst you're watching it, it's so easy to get kind of sucked into that world. So I can see exactly why um you know distributors wanted to to lead with this film wanted to market this film because as well as that you've got you know uh kira knightley too who who gives who for me i, I love kira um i know that she's over the years been kind of maligned a little bit for her choices that she's made in films but i think she's such a good emotional anchor uh, in any film and I think that Colette is a great example of that yeah um, I mentioned this in the Disobedience episode where I was talking about Rachel Weiss's performance uh, and similarly with Kira Knightley in here she doesn't really get enough credit for her comedy chops um, and in here she's actually she's really witty and funny and it doesn't feel fake at all it feels really natural and it feels like a side of her that perhaps we haven't seen enough I agree I mean I'm not a massive Kira Knightley fan historically but I think in this in this film she does give a George a dropping performance I think it also reflects her own personality because apparently she does she swears like a trooper and she seems quite down to earth and I think she only picks roles that have um, uh, characters really strong female characters and feminist films and things like that. I don't know. I mean, I've never met her. <laughs> <laughs> judging by her previous acting skills, I think she, this is one of her better films. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe if she likes swearing so much, maybe she saw the script and was like, I get to say Willie this much. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's, she's super charismatic in this film and she uh, she and Dominic West um, have a great um, chemistry, I think. He's he's on, he's also amazing in this film. Yeah. Uh, he's just a great actor in general. I really love him. Yeah, I'm really enjoying his uh, Jean Valjean <laughs> in <laughs> Les Mis. Just give me Dominic West in a costume. I'm yeah. happy. Yeah, in a fat suit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that a suit? Yeah, oh, I, well, I'd like to believe suits. you. He got portly all, no, all on man. his own. No, no um, yeah, they're, they're great together and uh, um, I think that they both play complex characters. They're both really well-rounded characters. One's, you know, they both have flaws and they, they, they both have good qualities and you see that they, they actually really did have a meaningful adult relationship. Yeah, and, and their relationship is the backbone of the yeah, film, exactly. um, for better or for worse, because I think it does mean that maybe when they have affairs or later life relationships, they struggle just because of how good West and uh, Knightley actually are together. Yeah. Um, but there's not, I don't think there's much you can do about it because complaining for, oh, you're doing it too well. <laughs> um, and I, th I think from formally the film is great for presenting what maybe other period works would do melodramatically in quite a matter-of-fact way. You might have seen on a lot of the posters and marketing for the film uh, this image of Knightley as Colette in this uh, fantastic black-and-white suit, which at the time would have been quite a statement to, for a woman to wear a suit. And that scene isn't done in a kind of dressing up montage going down to the tailors. Mm. She just walks into a room. That's one of the things I like the most about Colette is that it, it, it's got a really kind of renegade approach to sexuality and bisexuality. And I think it's so nice not to see this in any film, let alone a, a period piece, but see this in any kind of film of this of this stature is really refreshing. Um, and yeah. I think it's her, her sexuality is treated with a genuine kind of Well, it's uh, really affection. authentic. Yeah, it's an it's, affection and it's yeah. authentic. It's yeah. not treated as... as melodramatic like you said yeah. is a big huge thing mm. so. quite matter of factly it's just like well this is who she was and you know and you do get the sense that they that they were you know rebels and sort mm. of 
of uh, fighting against this this as you said in the beginning the patriarchy and the system and but you also get a sense that like she didn't really care about mm. any of that stuff she was just really just wanting to be herself and 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 live her truth and um get out from under societal sort of norms and 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 uh, expectations and it does mark the third and final part of the 2018 uh, women's writing getting claimed by men. Yes, trilogy. it does. We won't name the other films uh, for yeah. fear of spoiling them. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it seems to be a theme that's running throughout. Have you noticed this as well? No, yeah, by the no. way, no. <laughs> there are other films I don't want to mention. I mean, Mary Shelley being one of them, where we where, where seem to be looking back and looking at you know women who have been either manipulated or kind of uh, overshadowed by their husbands. Um, taken or, advantage of. Yeah, basically. taken advantage yeah. of. And who have all turned out to also be kind of addicted to sex as well. Um, and I think we'll, we'll probably continue to see this trope uh, in the next 12 months as well. But it's... Uh, Wait, yeah. who's addicted to sex? Well, the men? Yeah, the men oh, yeah. are. Yeah. Oh, Willie. <laughs> Willie is. Yeah. Willie. <laughs> I think that's going to be readdressed um, soon with the film Can I? Can You Ever Forgive Me that's coming out. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Which is, uh, which is basically the opposite. She doesn't have any sex. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> Turning it on its head a little bit. Yeah, no, I like that. It's about time, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, we were actually lucky enough to speak to Wash Westmoreland, the director of this film, uh, about Colette. And you can check out that interview by visiting the Curzon blog. That's curzonblog.com. Uh, and if you'd like to come along, we're having a birthday party for Curzon Soho in February. We're going to be screening Gigi, uh, which was written by Colette. So let's move on now to the new Jason Reitman film, <laughs> The Front Runner. Uh, it's 1988, and Gary Hart, played by Hugh Jackman, is the likable and inspirational Democratic nominee. He's winning hearts and minds on the campaign trail, but he's unwilling to open up about his family life. Uh, and the press unearth explosive details that begin to derail his marriage and his political aspirations. Uh, the personal fallout from this tabloid story would change the course of American politics. Uh, Kelly, I know you're a big fan of this film. Yeah, I saw it with Stephen, actually. And we both walked out of the film and we were like, yeah, yeah, I like that. I really like that film. There's <laughs> yeah. just so much to like about it. I mean, it kind of is a meandering film and it, it, it shows you know, the downfall of Gary Hart from multiple perspectives. Um, but I, I think it's it's a really good ensemble piece. Uh, the the cast is, is really strong and, and it's an interesting take on, on watching the downfall of someone really prominent. And yeah, I got to speak to uh, Jason Reitman about it. I hope you guys enjoy. Jason Reitman, welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Um, congratulations on this film. I'm very excited to talk about it. Um, I wanted to start off with uh, what fuels you to make films in general, because I I was listening to your interview with Mark Maron recently, yeah. and I know that you spoke about your motivations in the beginning sort of being uh, fueled by your a need to kind of prove yourself as a director in your own right, mm-hmm. uh, despite your your father being yeah. famous uh, Ivan Reitman, um, and so I wanted to know if that still fuels you, and if your motivation motivations have changed in any way um, over the you know, course of your career. Got it. Oh, great question. And you know, it's always so funny because that Mark Marin is so good at he just gets to your heart so quickly, and you find yourself revealing things that you would never tell, mm-hmm. like even close friends. Uh, I don't know what that gift is, but he has it. Certainly, as a younger filmmaker, there was a desire just to get over the finish line mm-hmm. and make something and hope people like it. And as I've made more movies, I've been more interested in the actual process of making movies and kind of my passion for the cast and crew that I get to work with. But at the heart of all of them is usually some sort of inner struggle. There's a place inside my heart or inside my brain where two sides are fighting. And when it comes to the political films, it's usually the liberal side of my heart and the libertarian side of my heart that can't agree over something. 
And in this story, The Front Runner, I felt like there were all kinds of issues that I couldn't quite get to the bottom of. I mean, I'm like anyone who's living in 2018. I look around, I do not know how the hell we got here, and I'm always intrigued when I feel like there's a seed or a thread to pull on that gives me a sense of maybe how we did. And when I heard the Gary Hart story, I thought, oh, here's perhaps, you know, an answer, at least a thread to pull on. This is a true life story, but it has such cinematic moments in it. Here you have the next president of the United States winds up in an alleyway in the middle of the night with three journalists behind his townhouse, and nobody knows what to do. No one's ever been there before, and they're asking him whether he's having an affair. Uh, and no one's really asked that question of a political candidate in the U.S. before. Mm. So it was inherently cinematic, and it brought up these questions for me about what do we deserve to know? Where does public start and where does okay. private start? Uh, what should the relationship between journalists and politicians be? What do we need to know about uh, our candidates? And there's a part of me that says, well, if you want to run for president, I should know everything. And then there's a part of me that says, well, they're a human being. And, you yeah. know, marriages are complicated. And, mm. uh, you know, if someone was going to, if a surgeon was going to operate on me, mm. I wouldn't really care if they were a nice guy or I wouldn't care, you know, what their marriage was like. I just want the mm. best surgeon. So it it brings up a lot of questions. And if someone is a womanizer, what does that say about how he thinks about women? Mm. So th there's so many questions that this little-known story brought up, mm. and I wanted to make sure I nailed that alleyway scene because it was the first thing that just kind of sparked. And then I wanted to make a movie that offered as many points of view into this subject uh, as I was capable of making. Mm -hmm. Yeah, given the current political state of America. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're and so divided. Yeah, we're exactly. so divided at this point. We're divided mm. on partisan lines. We're divided on gender lines. Mm -hmm. We're divided uh, on technological lines. Mm. We're divided uh, uh, on generational lines. And uh, here was a story that kind of offered points of view for each of those and offered us characters. That was the kind exactly. of cool thing is that mm. here's a movie with 20 main characters. Exactly. Whether, you know, men, women, young, old, journalists, campaign people, family members, yeah. uh, and how each one had a different way in. Yeah, how did you find working with such a huge en ensemble where you... Sort of oh, it was a thrill. Yeah. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, when you have 20 main characters, you have the opportunity to kind of work with actors you always want to work with. And mm. I got to work with Alfred Molina for the first time. Yes. And, you know, I got to work with Kevin Pollack for the first time. Uh, mm -hmm. I got to work with, uh, you know, Mike Judge, a director who I really admire, uh, a stand-up comedian like Bill Burr, um, young actors like uh, Alex Karpovsky from Girls and Josh Brenner from mm. Silicon Valley and uh, people who... You know, audience members probably won't know, like Mamadou Athi and Molly Ephraim mm. or, or Ari Grainer. Uh, all these talents, and each one has kind of sp such a specific identity in this film. Yeah. And each one kind of speaks to a different audience member. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is a movie that's messy. That's its purposeful style. It's kind of wild and alive, and it's supposed to feel real. Mm. And... The job, you know, the plot was already laid out. The plot was the plot. Mm -hmm. You know, we knew what happened. Mm. Uh, so now it just became, how do we tell this story? Yeah. And how do we make these real rooms feel so real mm -hmm. that as an audience member, it feels like you were just dropped on the floor at the Miami Herald or the Washington Post or in the campaign, and you're trying to figure out what's going around because there's three overlapping conversations and all these visuals, and your ears are telling you to look one way or the other, and in the moment, you as an audience member are having to make active decisions about what you think is important. Yeah, and what you're listening. I thought I think that that is completely... Um 
exemplified in your opening shot. The first five minutes of that long take, yeah. I was like, what is this? This is amazing. Because it felt like I was not only transported to the era, the time, yeah. but I, that I was watching a movie made at, at that time. You know, oh, it kind of felt you. really authentic in that way. And I know that people have sort of um, said that it's Altman-esque in yeah, its yeah, style. Yeah. And I was wondering if he, if that's purpose, if he's a purposeful influence for you. Totally. Who else kind of influenced this, your style that you sort of went I with? mean, you can't help but look at those kind of long shots and think of Altman and think of Nashville. But uh, Michael Ritchie was a big influence mm. for me. You know, films of his like Downhill Racer and particularly The Candidate for this movie. Mm. Uh, became a North Star as far as the tone and the style and what we'd show the actors as far as like this is this is what we're making mm. uh, you don't have to worry about making this uh, as a modern movie uh, think about this more of in a classical sense and think about the kind of the fluid nature of dialogue from the 1970s when you could kind of just overlap and add things um, and we would write addendum dialogue for characters we would give them articles from 1987 and just say hey read this learn the subject and you're mic'd, have a conversation about it. Oh, and yeah. the responsibility came down on our sound mixer, Steve Morrow, who is brilliant and did Star Wars Born and did La La Land. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was having to manage, you know, 12, 16 live mics at a time of everybody talking. That's crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. I mean, I've seen video of like his fingers moving and it's just insane. That's crazy. Um, so talented. I mean, yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, <coughs> he, he's one of those rare examples of someone who I've worked with since. You know, thank you for smoking. And I've watched his talent be realized and his skill develop and watch him work on, you know, everything from action movies to musicals. Mm. And and it's really fun to see him challenge himself within kind of a dramatic thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so just going back to, you know, your ensemble and everybody sort of had their own say in the way that they portrayed their characters. I know that you also worked with Matt Bai, who wrote the book mm -hmm. uh, that the movie's based on. And you also worked with... Um, Jay Carson. Jay Carson, yeah, who was Hillary Clinton's former press secretary. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I wanted to ask you, um, how did their sort of personal experiences and their perspectives um, filter into the writing process? And was it different for you... To how you usually write. Oh yeah, totally different. I mean, you know, I mentioned that this is a movie where we knew the plot. The plot was already kind of set in mm. stone by time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so now it's a question of how do we tell the story? And I was fortunate to work with Matt Bai, who had been at New York Times Magazine covering five presidencies, and mm. and Jay, who had been not only the press secretary for Hillary Clinton and Howard Dean, but worked with all these senators who were in Congress now. So we're talking decades of experience of being on kind of either side of the battlefield, because I think mm. these two people used to fight each other as a press secretary and journalist, <laughs> and they were lending all these stories, sharing all these things, giving all these characters voices mm. and conversations that have, they've heard and had themselves. Uh, and that was important, because I really wanted the audience to feel like they were just dropped into the real thing. Yeah, you, you, I think you could feel that. Thank you. And did you and did you um, work with Gary Hart at all in person for this film? Did you sit down with I him? I met you... many of the participants. I mean, mm. I met Gary Hart. I met Donna Rice. Mm. I met uh, all these campaign people, and would kind of ask them for their stories. They didn't read the script. I never, you know. This is one of those stories where everyone has a different perspective on what happened, and if I ask five people, I'm going to get five different stories, and there was no way to kind of honor everyone's version of events. Mm. But what I wanted was the details of their lives. I wanted the kind of the really odd, specific details. Mm. Uh, so we would ask them things like, what's your favorite drink? Who's your favorite sports team? What's something you always have in your pocket? What kind of car did you drive mm. at the time? And 
oddly, these details made the film richer. Has he seen the film? Have you spoken to him about it? Yeah, since? yeah. I showed Gary and Lee the film, showed Donna Rice the film, okay. Tom Fielder the film, campaign team the film. Uh, first time Gary and Lee watched the film, <laughs> Gary said, do I really talk like that? <laughs> and his wife leaves and, darling, that's exactly how you speak. Oh my God. Yeah, the more important screening for mm. me was Strangely Donna Rice. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, here's you know, you know, a young woman whose life was just kind of ripped out of her hands. She was a young, ambitious, smart woman who has been treated by many people as an object for decades. Mm. And uh, I wanted her to feel the empathy that I had for her. And she was uh, very moved by the decency in Sarah Paxton's performance of her. For many American viewers who know kind of the, the beats of this story, they're waiting for the moment. They know there's going to be a moment where this candidate meets this woman on a boat, and they have this presumption of who she's going to be. And you don't show her face We then. don't show her then. Yeah. You have yeah. to wait for halfway through the movie, and you only finally meet her when she's a human being exactly. who's broken, who's crying, whose life's been ripped from her. Uh, and you were forced to reckon with your presumptions of who she was going to be. Yeah, and you can feel that in Molly Efron's performance as well when she oh, realizes isn't that. Isn't she great? You know, she's uh, Molly Efron's amazing. She's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we've run out of time, but thank you so, so much for sitting Pleasure. and talking with me. And good luck for everything else for the movie. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Right. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, thank you to Jason Reitman for lending us his time there. Um, now, where do we stand on Reitman at the moment? He's a busy, busy guy. Um, he's This is his second 2018 film. We're counting this as a 2018 film from Tully to this. And he's working his socks off. And I think maybe he, from the golden era of Juno up in the air he's not quite in that area now um, so I think maybe that's made the excitement for a new Reitman film plateau slightly Lydia what were your expectations I actually going really like Tully I, I must be the only person but I really I thought it was great um, I didn't see the twist coming <laughs> Um, spoiler alert. But anyway, let's talk about the front runner because that's why I'm here. Um, I really enjoyed the front runner. I did worry about uh, Gary Hart. Like, who is he? No one's going to know who he is in England. And why is it relevant? Because that was so long ago. And, you know, it all becomes um, apparent why it's relevant because it's 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 replicating today, basically. And it also started off the whole process of how um, the media uh, inf- uh, interested in sex and politics and how and how that has evolved in the way that we 
handle democracy and politics these days. And um, so they, so that was a turning point, I think, in history. Even though he was a great politician and he could articulate to the masses, unlike me, um, <laughs> <laughs> how um, uh, like policies and 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 make, making politics accessible and simple for everyone. And he was a great politician, but it's just the, the personal life that he didn't want to share with everyone because he was a private person um, and the, that's all the media were interested in and realised that that could sell newspapers and that mm. was his downfall. And I think what's I think one of the reasons that Gary Hart's story is kind of overlooked in present day is because it's it actually does seem rather tame compared to the kind of nonsense that we have to see every day in the news now. Um, yeah, but imagine if a politician <laughs> got into a huge yeah. amount of power. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> careers, careers are kind of ruined and tarnished or, made or, or made by this kind of stuff on a daily basis now. Um, but I think Reitman's just so interested in, in looking back and whether this was the turning point of, of when, you know, the political media storm became this frenzied kind of chase after this sexual and deviancy uh, to it, yeah, yeah tabloid yeah. deviancy that is now like maybe it did or maybe it wasn't but i think that that reitman wants to look back and, and try and find that sweet spot of like w- of when this actually occurred well i just think it's interesting that he's he's i think more interested in the debate about it like he he it's a film look whatever you want to say about this film, it's a film that makes you question things and you walk away wanting to talk about it. You go like, was he right? Was he wrong? Was the media right? It's, it's, it sparks this debate. And I think more than anything that that's, that's the success of the film. Um, uh, because, you know, these are just, there's no villain or hero in this film. They are just people dealing with the situation. Happens to be uh, in the media um, on, a, on a big public scale. But peop- these are people just dealing with f- questions about, you know, their, their own like moral philosophy and, you know, what's right, what's wrong, um, you know, and was the punishment deserved, deserved, um, or you know, like, did should he have actually dropped out of politics? Maybe he had more to give. Maybe he would have, uh, you know, steered us in another direction. <laughs> well, I think it's so it's interesting in the fact that, that Reitman gives us this charismatic, handsome, mm. like um, a man who speaks to youth. He's he's left wing. He's like Kennedy light. They used to call him. Uh, yeah, we kind of find ourselves slowly forgiving him for his 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 the issues that he's had with his extramarital affairs. But then, then that in turn makes you question, like, sh- then why do we judge someone like Donald Trump so harshly for what he's done? And obviously there are a lot more myriad of reasons for that. But that's the kind of questioning that Reitman wants to do is, is to say, like, does a, he obviously he's not he's this isn't a right wing film. It's not trying to build sympathy for Trump. But what he wants to ask us is how much of our politicians personal lives do we want to get involved in? And so, for some people, the answer is everything. And for me, a large part of it is that. But at the same time, these are the casualties that happen when you get this involved in your in your politicians' kind of lives. It certainly sounds really interesting, one that I really want to check out. Uh, I'm a sucker for any film that's got a Ben Bradley in it. And uh, this one's got <laughs> Alfred Molina in it. Ben Bradley Sr. following on from Hanks' performance in the same role last year. Uh, wondering who's going to be 2019's Ben Bradley. Uh, and The Front Runner and Colette are not the only films out this week. We've also got Stan and Ollie... Uh, that's Steve Coogan and John C. Riley on screen uh, as the famous double act. Uh, we haven't been lucky enough to see it yet, but there's a BAFTA nomination for Coogan and a Golden Globe nomination for Riley, and we'll be checking it out ASAP. Uh, and along with that central pair, Shirley Henderson and Nina Ariande also appear in the film, and Curzon blog editor Ryan Hewitt actually sat down earlier in the year with them both to talk about this love letter to the golden age of stardom. And you can head to the again to the Curzon blog to check that interview out. I will say that Shirley and Nina are 
for me the the best part of Stan and Ollie as well. Those two are a hilarious double act in their own right. I think they kind of overshadow uh, Coogan and John C. Riley in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. So the Cousin blog once again being masterfully curated <laughs> <laughs> for its talent choices. Um, and if you don't fancy heading out to the cinema, you can check out Curzon Home Cinema, where there is now a BAFTA collection. If you haven't seen the BAFTA nominations, they are out and nominated. We've got Beast, uh, RBG, McQueen, Cold War, Apostasy, Dogman, uh, and then we've got The Wife and Shoplifters coming soon. That is the four times nominated Cold War, rolling on from the European Film Awards success and heading into a Oscar window. I think Cold War is proving to be such a massive hit. And I think that's about it. If you want to, uh, you can check out last week's episode with Mark Gatiss, all about The Favourite, another uh, kind of deconstruction of maybe the period romance, uh, in a way. And if you've got any thoughts on Colette or The Front Runner or Stan and Ollie, then do let us know by emailing podcast at curzon.com for next week's show uh, or tweeting us at Curzon Cinema. Uh, now's the time to dip into some of our emails, and one that I've plucked out is on a film, because I knew you were coming on the show, Kelly, mm. uh, one that I know that you love. So this is about Assassination Nation from Millicent Thomas, and she says, I saw the film at LFF, and the audience I was with applauded at least four times throughout, and then at the end, I even whooped a little bit. <laughs> uh, I just haven't felt that much adrenaline in the cinema for a long time. And I think you'd uh, you'd mirror that sentiment. Yeah, yeah, I love that film. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, I still haven't checked it out and I really should uh, and Millicent uh, said that you can check out a full review on the Berlin Film Journal if you want to check that out uh, so do email us in your thoughts for this week's films as I said uh, if it's your first time listening to the podcast you can subscribe by doing so on iTunes or Spotify or Acast or wherever you get your pods uh, leave us a review or comment as well uh, next week oh what up here come that beautiful boy and in a shock twist he's bringing M. Night Shyamalan's latest with him if you want to keep updated with us uh, you can follow Stephen uh, sorry <laughs> I didn't think you were actually going to say it I'm sorry <laughs> I love it though. I love it go on uh, if you want to keep updated with us all, Stephen, uh, we, we're kind of migrating over to Letterboxd now, where yeah. we've got, we're diarising our films, yes. and we can keep up with you on Letterboxd at Hydra815. That's correct. Um, any recent highlights for you for on me? there? Yeah. Uh, I watched One Cut of the Dead recently, which I, I thought was so, so good. Yeah. Uh, it tricked me multiple times. I thought it was a bad movie. It's not. It's great. Like it, half an hour in, I was like, "Oh no!" And then by the end of it, I was completely flawed. So yeah, one yeah. cut of the dead. And Kelly, we can keep up with you on there at Kelly P Triple E. Yes. <laughs> Any highlights, Kelly? Oh, I saw uh, I saw Glass last night. Oh, which Ooh. we'll be yeah. talking about mm, on the sorry. podcast. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> And you can keep up with uh, Lydia by just following the Curzon Cinema's programming. Uh, just go to the cinema. That's the best way to support her. Uh, and if you want to, you can follow me on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham. And that is about it. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. a bit of a prick actually. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.